intrigued me. Uh, it's found in, in John chapter 2. And it's the time when Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus is at a wedding with his mother and at least some of his, his disciples. <clears throat> and a wedding at this time looked different than, than ours do. Uh, a wedding would be like going to a week-long party. So parents of daughters who have to pay for this thing, it's a bit of a stress. But in, in this context, it's actually the, the parents of the, of the husband who would pay for it. And in fact, what uh, I've heard once that, that what they would do is from the moment that their son is born, that they'd start putting aside a barrel of wine every year. And so by the time they get to their wedding, you know, they've got these really good stuff that's been aging for a while and then some stuff that's a bit nastier because it's pretty fresh, but uh, it's, they've just got lots of it. And so people would be coming and going throughout the week, you know, as they needed to with, uh, with food and wine for the, for the whole event. But at this wedding that Jesus was at, the wine ran out. And it's not that the reception was, you know, winding up and so the tab at the bar was about to close. It's, it's that this thing was still in full swing. People were still there. The wedding celebration was still going. Food was still being served. But there was no wine. And so for the bridegroom and his family, this was a major social faux pas, uh, with the potential to cause you know, significant embarrassment, both in the, in the moment and ongoingly. Remember that time we went to that wedding and they ran out of wine? Like it, it would become town gossip, if you like. But Mary's there, Jesus' mother, and she tries to nip the problem in, in the bud. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus, quite reasonably, uh, uh, in my opinion, asked her in effect, what do, you, what do you want me to do about it? And she doesn't answer him. She, she doesn't respond to him, but, but she simply tells the servants to go and do whatever Jesus tells them to do. I imagine this bit of a wink at Jesus as she says, go and do whatever he tells you to. You know, very mum-like. And so nearby, there stand these six large water jars, each holding about 100 litres of, of water. And they were used for ceremonial washing. And so perhaps because of that, they're, they're not quite full at the moment. And so Jesus gives the instruction to, to top them up. And so they're filled to the brim. And then this water is taken to the master of the banquet to taste. Only now it's no longer water, but it's wine. Now, when, when a wedding goes on for about a week... It usually, it was, that, it was that good wine, that wine that had been set apart, you know, when that child was born. It's, it's that wine that's brought out first. And then once people are, you know, well underway and they've lost any sense of discernment about what they're drinking, that's then when the, the older, the newer stuff, sorry, that's when the newer, nastier stuff comes out. But bucking the trend, the wine that's now being served, the wine that has come from these massive jars of, of water, the wine that comes from that, is now the best wine that they've ever tasted. And the story then finishes with this verse that says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, turning the water into wine at a wedding, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Do you realize how bizarre that kind of statement is? We are, we are years away from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
So far, he hasn't healed anyone or taught anything. He hasn't won any debate with Pharisees. He hasn't cast out any demons. He hasn't claimed to be God. He hasn't done anything really that would indicate that he's the promised Messiah that Israel is waiting for. But he has turned water into wine. And that's enough to reveal his glory and to prompt his disciples to believe in him. And so that tells us that there's something more going on than just what's on the surface in, in this story. For, for one thing, the, the water that Jesus changed and had been used for ceremonial cleansing. It wasn't just any water. It was water that was tied up with ceremony and ritual and, and religion and legalism. And so for Jesus to change such water into wine... It subtly says that he's freeing people from having to live in such ways and, and to release them into joy and celebration and into abundance. And Jesus could have preached a sermon on this. I mean, he, he preached plenty of sermons, both to large crowds and probably just with his disciples. He could have... He could have preached a sermon. He could have led a Bible study on it. He could have just gathered his disciples around and talked with them in a small group. And he's done these kinds of things before. But here, this is not something he teaches with his words. It's something he embodies. It's something that he lives with his life, with his actions. And it happened both metaphorically and literally around a table. So we're taking, as David has said, a couple of weeks to look at to look at the table and to see what it is that God does in us and through us when we're around the table with food and in fellowship with others. This week we're going to look at, at Jesus at, at the table and then next week we're going to look at the early church and their life around the table. Um, before, as David has said, we'll put into practice the, the following week uh, in Hospitality Sunday as we have one another into our homes for, for lunch. And part of the inspiration behind this series for me is the idea that something happens when we gather around the table with others. I mean, we might think about, I was reflecting on this this morning, we might think you know, that the real moments of spiritual growth and change and transformation that they, you know, of course, they happen at church, listening to top quality sermons like you get here every week. Or, uh, or they happen when you go on a, on a retreat and take time out and you contemplate and you get oh, silent and, and all that kind of stuff and then that's when God speaks to you. Or, or you might be on a conference and it's a real high or a camp and, and all that kind of stuff. But actually I think there's something that happens around the table. Um, it's around the table that we see lived out what it is to, to know Jesus and to follow him and to become like him and to do so then with others of his people. And so there's absolutely something to be said for times of formal Bible study, for hearing sermons, for one-on-one -on -one counseling and, and, and all these other means of growth. But, but I have a sneaking suspicion that something, or if not more, at least something different happens when there's food and drink involved. And we've already seen that here. Jesus turns water into wine, and the result is that the disciples believe in him. There was no instruction on the Torah. There was no looking at the law and the prophets and how they point to him. There was no academic debate about the coming Messiah. There was just Jesus at a party with his friends and with his family around the table with food and with drink, and it's there that he began to reveal his glory. It's not the only time that we see Jesus at a party. In Luke 7, he says of himself that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. 
And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, he was not, uh, he was not a, a glutton or a drunk. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a false accusation against him. But, but for him to have such a reputation shows us something. It shows us that he was regularly sitting down with others with good food and to enjoy good wine, which he did with the Pharisees and the religious leaders as well as with the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was regularly at the table. And one such occasion was at the home of Levi, the tax collector. Jesus calls Levi to follow him, which he did. And then we read what happens next in Luke chapter 5, verse 29. It says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but, but yours go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? There's a lot going on here, not, not least being the scandal that Jesus is eating with people who are below him and who are unwelcome in society. In Luke 15, we read that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus and to hear his teaching. And I assume that while this may not have been you know, perhaps common practice, this, this was okay because how else would these tax collectors and sinners learn that they needed to change their ways and, and to live in holiness unless they're hearing teaching and instruction from a rabbi? But the description goes on to say, not just that they were gathering around to hear Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The issue that they had with Jesus is not that he was teaching these people, but that he was eating with them. To eat with someone in this culture, and probably still much the same today, really, isn't it? It implies acceptance of that person. It implies having a relationship with this person where, where they are welcome in each other's lives. It may not be the same as fully affirming you know, all they believe and how they live, but it is recognising in them the image of God and so welcoming them to the table with you and loving them there. And so the problem for the Pharisees, who were diligently committed to maintaining their moral integrity and their ritual purity, was that they could not see tax collectors and sinners, they could not see them as people made in the image of God just as they were, all they could see was that they were sinners and their sin was dangerous and contagious and could contaminate them by association. If they associated with such people, sorry, that's not how they would have thought. If they associated with such sinners, they themselves might become impure in some way. But for Jesus, he wasn't worried about any of that. He wasn't worried about being contaminated. He was much more concerned about the, about the person. He knew that he had to be with sinners because how else could he save them? Imagine being a doctor who refused to see sick people. Oh no, you're sick, I can't see you. It's a, it's a ludicrous idea. But as he will say later when he's the guest of another sinner named Zacchaeus, Jesus says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So he had to be with them. 
And in fact, in the story of Zacchaeus, if you look at it, it's while Jesus is the guest of a sinner that salvation comes to his house. It seems that it's simply the very act of Jesus being with him in his home, around his table, that it's that that brings the transformation in Zacchaeus' life. Because it's not the healthy who need a doctor. And so we jump back to, to Levi's house. And they now ask him a question. And it's unclear who the they are, but I think when we look at it, the, the they is the sick that he's come to heal. It's the sinners and the tax collectors that he's come to save. And so they ask him, in effect, Jesus, you're doing something that no one else does. No one else gathers around our table with us. No one else welcomes and includes us like this. No one eats and drinks to maintain, you know, the, the others, they, they fast and they deny themselves, but you're eating and drinking and, so, and yet you're still maintaining purity and all that. How does, how does this work? What's going on here? Why, why are you like this? And Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? So just like ceremonial washing. This fasting was a serious business. It was all about denial and discipline and withdrawal. But a wedding, a wedding's all about joy and about celebration and about engagement with life. And so think of the last wedding that you went to. It would make no sense at all. You know, you've got the bridal party sitting in the middle of the the bridal table. And then you've got the the groomsmen and and the um, bridesmaids, that was the word. Uh, You've got them sitting there And they are just in a mood. They're just flat and grumpy with each other. They're just serious and withdrawn. And this gourmet food comes out before them. And they're like, no, I don't, I don't, no. Just just being Eeyores at the wedding. (laughs) It's a mood killer, isn't it? I mean, have you had... A family meal, I don't even need to ask, have you? You know the family meal that you've been at, don't you, where someone's just in a foul mood and it just permeates around the table and it affects everyone, it affects the whole dynamic. So there's no way that a bridal party are doing this. No, they'd be joining in the party. They're celebrating the good news of this marriage of their friends. Like, I don't dance. Because there is a fundamental disconnect between the lower half of my body and the upper half of my body. So I can get the hands going, I could get the feet going, but I can't get the hands and the feet going at the one time. That's, it just doesn't, it just, it doesn't work. So I don't, I don't dance, but I do at a wedding. So long as Maren's there, now you all want to come to a wedding and see, see this thing happen, don't you? But I do dance at a wedding. Why? Because that's what a wedding calls for. You're meant to dance and celebrate and engage in the fullness of life. And so this is not to discount the value and the importance of fasting, but Jesus says here, you know, of course my followers, of course they eat and they drink and they engage in the fullness of life because he is with them as as the bridegroom. And so it's at the table we've seen already that welcome is expressed. It's at the table that salvation comes. It's at the table that healing is experienced. It's at the table that the holiness and the life of God is spread to others. It's at the table that that lives are changed. It's at the table that Jesus and life in him is celebrated and given thanks for. And again, it's at the table that Jesus 
reveals himself. And his kingdom that he's the king of is displayed for others to see. So in Luke 14, just a few pages over if if you're tracking along, he challenges those who seek the place of honour and prestige in social settings. He says, when you have a dinner party, don't invite the people who are going to invite you back and and return the favour. Verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Remember what else Jesus says, the first will be last and the last will be first in the kingdom of God. And so when one of those at the table heard Jesus say this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now this person recognises that God is preparing a banquet for his people. We're not sure if, if Jesus got, if this person got what Jesus said, you know, this whole thing about inviting the poor and the lame and, and the crippled, or if, um, if that was just far too confronting for him to think about what the nature of the kingdom is like. So maybe he's sitting in the discomfort of where the table conversation has gone. So he's trying to steer it back into safer water. You know, let's talk theology because that's always fun and easy. But so, so he does that. But either way, Jesus responds with a story. And he says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. Matthew 22 is a parallel account and it opens the story this way to say, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So as we read this story, we're we're talking about Jesus, the son of the king, the the king of the kingdom, the, the bridegroom at the wedding. And he's at the table. And we're told that as the host, he's invited many guests. But, but when that feast was ready, when it was all laid out, all those who he, had, who he had invited started to make excuses and they didn't come. So then the servant came back and reported this to the master. And then the owner of the house became angry and he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Jesus in this story is showing what his kingdom is really like. And it's shocking and confronting. Truly blessed is the one who will eat in the feast of the kingdom because they are there by sheer grace. It's not about what they can offer or what they can contribute or about their worthiness to be there. They are, after all, the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind. Jesus challenges our idea of who is in and who is out by extending grace, welcome and inclusion and belonging to those who have nothing. In Mark 6, we see the contrast between the way of Jesus and the way of his kingdom and that of the world. In Mark 6, we read that on his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And so this is a a party. This is an A-list invitation only, 
you know, guards at the door, no expense spared kind of a thing. The paparazzi are there with their hammers and chisels or whatever they used in those days. And at this party that is full of men of power and prestige, full of wine and drunkenness, full of pride and posturing, full of music and fine clothes, full of selfishness and sin, the daughter of Herod's wife, Herodias, dances in a way that pleases a room full of men, and Herod in particular. The left to imply what kind of dance that is. And so Herod then offers up to her half of his kingdom, but instead she requests the head of John the Baptist. And Herod, needing to keep on showing off, needing to keep his prestige and his position and all that before his guests, he orders John to be killed. Immediately after this scene, Mark recounts how Jesus and his disciples went off by themselves to a quiet place to find rest. But getting there, they met with a large crowd. There was no security keeping the riffraff away. Just everyone came. And so there's this large crowd there. And Jesus, having compassion on them, begins to teach them. Until late in the day, the disciples ask him, you know, Jesus, send them away so that they can go home and get themselves something to eat. But Jesus finds out they've got, two, they've got five loaves of bread and two fish. And so he directs the people to sit. He gives thanks for the bread and the fish. And he got his disciples to share it out amongst the people. And we read then that they all ate and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of the men, not including women and children and others who might have been there, the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Do you see how, how Jesus' meal and, and how Jesus' kingdom then contrasts with, with that of Herod's? Where, where Herod was self-focused, Jesus was selfless. Where Herod's invite list was the exclusive and the privileged few, Jesus welcomed any and all. Where Herod and his guests indulged themselves, Jesus and his disciples, just they offered up what they had. Where Herod took, Jesus gave. Where, where Herod's party ended in death, Jesus' gathering celebrated life. Where Herod's meal seemed abundant and yet was empty, lacking heart, lacking soul, lacking life. Jesus' meal seemed so simple and yet was satisfying and overflowing and abundant. Don't miss what else happens at this meal with Jesus. Remember, Moses had provided bread from heaven for the Israelites as they wandered through the desert after their escape from Egypt. And this bread, or, or, the, or manna it was called, it would only last the day that it was meant to be eaten on. Families would collect enough for that day, but that was all. But here, it's Jesus who now provides bread in the wilderness, and not just what is needed for the immediate moment but 12 baskets full of leftovers. He will call himself the bread of life and he shows himself to be greater even than, than Moses. And so it's at, it's at the table, or in this case, it's at the picnic blanket or on the grass where Jesus reveals himself and where he demonstrates the very different reality of life in his kingdom. It's done so around the table. And so there are many, many more times when we see Jesus at table. For instance, in the home of Simon Peter, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, where after healing her, he's served by her before he heals others in the town. 
or he's at the home of Simon the Pharisee where he's anointed by a sinful woman and he challenges Simon to see her, not as her actions, but as the person she is made in the image of God. There's the Last Supper before his death as, a, as an obvious one. Or when he cooks some fish by the lake for his friends after his resurrection. But there's one more I want us to look at briefly today before we start to wrap up. It's now the first day of the week. And two friends have begun walking home from Jerusalem, where just days earlier they witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. And as they're walking along, they're, they're subdued, and they're discouraged and confused. And a third person joins them as they walk along and he asks, what are you discussing as you walk along together? And these friends tell this stranger about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And they had hoped that he was the one who would save and redeem Israel. So this stranger responds, though, by working through the writings of Moses and the prophets to explain that the Messiah had to suffer these things and then enter into his glory. Well, they come to their village and the friends invite the stranger to stay with them overnight, which he agrees to do. And then we read this, Luke 24, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. It's around the table that Jesus reveals himself and reveals the nature of his kingdom that the Messiah had to suffer and then enter into his glory. But the story doesn't even end there. It's not that he breaks bread, gives it to them, and then they recognize him. These friends then rush back to Jerusalem despite the late hour and finding the other disciples the two then told what had happened along the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And while they're still all just talking together, Jesus himself stands among them. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in, his, in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything written must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. The proof of Jesus' resurrection is a very ordinary thing. He ate in their presence. And in the context of eating with them, he explained to them what the scriptures say about the Messiah, that, about the scriptures that are fulfilled in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. We usually think about Jesus in terms of the big things, the, the great things he did. You know, calming a raging storm, walking on the water, healing someone blind or, or lame from birth, when he cast out demons, when he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead or, or the widow's son. We think about his major teachings like the, the Sermon on the Mount or his confrontations with the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders. These are, these are often the things that are front of mind when we think about Jesus and the things that he did. And absolutely they are significant in his life and in his ministry and for our understanding of who he is and what he's about. But what we've seen today is that it's in the very ordinary everyday thing of just eating food with others that Jesus made himself known 
and he pointed them to the kingdom that he was unveiling. And nothing has changed. One of the points that we'll make over these two weeks is that even now, we have the opportunity to continue to see Jesus and to reveal his kingdom when we gather around the table. And not just the communion table. We often think about that and limit it to that. But we see him in the face of the person sitting across from us. We experience him in us as we extend welcome to someone. We hear the echoes of his kingdom in the laughter that goes on around the table, a laughter that's born of joy and of freedom. And we hear those echoes too, though, in the, in the compassion that responds to the pain and the tears that are shared around the table. I haven't done the study for it yet, uh, but I suspect that we will see this come out all the more clearly next week when we look at the church gathered around the table. But for now, I want to offer you two invitations. The first, the first is this. <clears throat> we just finished a, a series working through the Psalms. And at the start of that series, I, I, I gave an invitation to, let's read through the Psalms together. Let's try you know, two Psalms a, a day and we'll work through them. And, and so at the same time as we're preaching on them on a Sunday, we personally are, are reading through them. Same idea, same, same, but different. So my invitation to you this week then is to pick a gospel and to read through it this week. doesn't matter which one. Uh, I've used a lot of Luke today. Maybe you want to jump into John or, or whatever else. But, but pick a gospel to read through and read through it and to read it through the lens of Jesus at the table. Pay attention to what he embodies. Pay attention to what he expresses. And pay attention, maybe most significantly, to the impact or the challenge that he has then on those others who are with him around the table. In other words, I want to say, don't just take my word that this is significant. It's not like, oh, Matt's had some crazy idea to sit at a table and preach from there, and so he's just got to build something around it. No, so, so don't, don't just take my word for it, but look at the word yourself. Look at the scriptures and see what they have to say. The second invitation then is this. I know we've got our hospitality Sunday coming up. And absolutely, let me encourage you, get on board with that. Be a host or maybe not. Be a guest because we've already got enough hosts. Maybe not. Just sign up for that and get involved. That, that's, that's the message there. Absolutely. But I also want to say, don't wait till then. Already. This week. Today even. Who can you welcome to your table? It doesn't have to be anything fancy. A sausage on bread will do. I mean, Jesus had bread, like, you know, basic bread and, and fish. Because the point is actually less about the food and more about the company and what you do together. So who can you invite? That would be my question to you. Now, I know that there are families where, where mealtimes is not this idyllic scene of peace and harmony, but looks more like the beginning of Saving Private Ryan. I understand that. Um, and so there's no, no, there's no judgment or guilt on those who, who don't or simply can't do mealtimes together. But you can still gather around a table with others. Get creative. Maybe it's breakfast at a cafe before work. Maybe it's stopping for a coffee or a wine or a milkshake with someone in the afternoon. Maybe it's a des dessert after the chaos of dinner is over and the kids have farmed off and then you can have time. 
whatever it looks like, the question is, who can you include? Who, who can you welcome? Is it the, the single parent, the widow, the young family, that, the new couple, that person that you've never yet spoken to before? Or maybe it's that person that you've only ever spoken to at church, but you want to extend the, the relationship beyond that. Maybe the person you could invite is the teenager who helps out in kids' church. Or maybe even the pastor. Just kidding. But seriously, though, we are always up for it, just putting it out there. Because this is the thing, you're going to eat the meal anyway. So who else can be a part of that with you? So let's gather around the table with each other and with other people, not just because we want to be friends with them, though that's important in and of itself, but because we want to be like Jesus and we want to express the reality of his kingdom. And as we do so, maybe we'll get accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. But if we are, we're in good company. So let's pray. And after, after we do so, we're going to take a few moments to individually reflect and prayerfully respond as we're going to have Susan and Nathan come and sing a song for us before we then sing together again. So let's pray and then be ready to, to reflect. So Jesus, we thank you for what we've seen of you today, of your life around the table and what you do as you gather there the welcome that you extend. And that's a challenge to us, to invite the crippled, the lame, the poor, the blind, those who can't give anything back. But as we consider the the challenge of that for us, we realize that's exactly what you have done when you invited us around your table, when you've invited us to your banquet feast of the kingdom. And so may we be aware of your grace to us, And may we then show that to others. And as we do so, God, we would ask that that Jesus would be revealed, that he'd be revealed in us and through us to those we're with, and that the, the different nature of your kingdom, a kingdom that is then one of love and of life, of joy, of freedom, of abundance, that that would become evident to others around us. And that through eating together, you might work your transformation in us and in those who we have as our guests. Jesus, be at work. Do your work of revealing yourself. And we pray that we would see that and live that out together as your church, as your people, uh, in this particular way around the table. Guide us and lead us into how we respond to this. Show us who, give us eyes to see who you would have us invite and welcome. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.